Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're uh, with us today. We're continuing on in our Romans sermon series, and today we're going to be working through the rest of Romans chapter 12, which is what you just heard read. Uh, If you haven't already, I encourage you to have this passage open on your Bible, so whether that's your physical Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles underneath your chairs, you can use your phone, uh, but we do encourage you to, to look at these words as we're looking at them together. How should a Christian see themselves and the other people around them? This is a question I think Paul tackles uh, in these verses this morning. In the first two verses of chapter 12, which is what we spent last week talking about, answer the question, how do we, as a Christian, relate to God, and how should we view God? And we saw that it's in view of God's mercies, which he's had on us, that the way that we ought to respond to God is through worship. So if you look again at verse 1 in in Romans chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So if you're reading from the NIV, which is what I just read from, or if you have the NIV, or I'm sorry, ESV, which is what I just read from, if you have the NIV, both those translations for the word spiritual there, uh, in the NIV, you're going to see true and proper. Um, They don't really paint the full picture. Uh, the, the Greek word that Paul uses right there is logikos, logikos, and, and, and it more literally means rational or logical. And so the heart of Paul's words in chapter 12, which is, really is the turning point for the book of Romans, means that in light of everything that Paul has talked about in chapters 1 through 11, the rational or the logical response as Christians is to offer our whole lives in worship to God. Now, this is really important because it's by this same argument which Paul is going to flow into the rest of chapter 12. So Paul showed us the logical response we ought to have as we relate to God is is in worship, but what is the logical response we ought to have as, uh, as we become Christians to view ourselves and the other people around us in light of the gospel that we've been transformed by? Now, before we dive into answer Paul's question, I do want to pray just one more time, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word says that you are light and that there is no darkness in you at all. James says that you are the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In you, there is not a single molecule of untruth. There's not an atom of evil. There's not a single quark of sin. But God, as we look out into the world around us, we see lies, we see evil, and we see sin of all sorts a world that is in much darkness. And so, God, we do thank you, especially for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray now that you would illuminate your word for us as we read it, God. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us soft hearts to be able to receive what you have for for us this morning? Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's jump in, starting with verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." Right away, Paul shows us how we as Christians ought to view ourselves and others. In verse 3, he says, 
that everyone in the church at Rome should not, I'm going to quote it here in the second part of uh, verse 3, think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So in other words, don't esteem yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't consider yourself more important or more valuable or more significant than you ought to. Don't navigate through life like you are God's gift to all of mankind around you. Apparently, pride was a pretty significant factor in Rome, just like it is for us here today. And Paul isn't just warning against a toxic arrogance. He's talking about a self-centeredness that we ought to be avoiding. Like, where everything is seen through the lens of, hey, what's in it for me? Or what am I going to get out of this experience? Or how do I feel about this? What do I think about this? As if the world around us uh, and, and our experience of it relies on, on, on us. Instead, Paul says to think with sober judgment in regards to ourselves. Notice how Paul isn't saying to think lowly of ourselves or to be self-deprecating. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember, the first two verses in Romans 12, it's in light of God's mercies that the Christian who is having his or her mind transformed by the renewing of their minds through God's word, we talked all about this last week, who is then able to have a sober and accurate and clear understanding and view of themselves. Not having a view of themselves that's been distorted by the world, uh, that's been broken by what the world thinks and is preaching to us. Remember, we're not being conformed to the world. And remember, the gospel is what does this to us. That's why Paul is talking to Christians here. This is not a generic moralistic sermon where the application for, for, for any and all people is just to think rightly about themselves and then the world is going to be a better place. It's not the sermon here. That's not what's happening. Look at what Paul says, the, the last part of verse 3. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So at first reading, we might be tempted to interpret that as we are only able to think of ourselves rightly and have sober judgment in proportion to the amount of faith that God has given us. But once again, this is another instance where going to the Greek is actually helpful because that word for measure here, it does not mean amount. Uh, it's the word metron, metron, which means it is a standard of measurement or, or an instrument of measurement. It's where we get the word metronome from. So Paul is not saying to be sober-minded relative to the amount of faith that God has given you. Logically, that wouldn't make sense. You can't be sort of sober. You can't be 75% sober. Sobriety is binary. So you're either sober or you're not, regardless of what our culture says about sobriety. Now what Paul is saying then is to think of ourselves with sober judgment according to the standard of faith which God has given us. Well, what is that standard? Paul's been laying out the standard that we are broken sinners deserving of death who called on the name of the Lord in faith and we are fully forgiven of our sins and we're grafted into the family of God as righteous and pure sons and daughters of God. That is the standard. So thinking soberly means having these truths about ourselves as our ultimate standard or our ultimate measuring stick as we view ourselves. So we ought not think too highly of ourselves, but we need to remember that, hey, we're wretched sinners who need grace and mercy every single waking and sleeping moment. But 
We also must not think too lowly of ourselves because we are beloved children of God who have been justified and who are more than conquerors. What this means for us is if we are thinking soberly by utilizing the gospel as our standard of measurement for ourselves and not our skills or our gifts or any earthly accomplishment or any social standing that we have, if that's happening, then no Christian should be riding on a high horse And no Christian should be dragging their face in the mud. So there's no first-class Christian, there's no third-class Christian, and there's nothing in between. We are all united under one roof as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian should be an assembly line clone of one another, that we should all start wearing the same clothes and saying the exact same things. That would be really creepy. We're not going to do that. On the contrary, Paul says in verse 4, for as in one body, we have many members. I'm sorry, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, he's talking about the church, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So having a right and mature view of ourselves and others it gets complicated by the fact that we are all very, very, very different. And we'll see in a minute that God has given different gifts to different people in the church, and it is just our bent. It is our sinful inclination as, as broken people, as insecure people, to rank these gifts and to rank ourselves and our own giftings against others around us with different giftings. But this is profoundly unchristian to think of ourselves too highly or too lowly in relation to the gifts that God has given us. That is not using sober judgment. It's not sober judgment of ourselves, and it's not sober judgment of one another. That's what it means to be conformed to the world around us and how the world would have us view ourselves and one another. So here's what you need to hear. You, as the Christian, are not any better or any worse any greater or any lesser because of the experiences, the giftings or insights that you have, or a lack of giftings or experience or insight that you have. There is no cosmic Christian leaderboard in heaven that the angels are like circling around and, 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 the, and all of our names are sh- constantly shifting in rank based on our, like what we're doing in life and, and what our Christian stats are. That is not what's happening in heaven. This is something that's, that's incredibly elementary, but it's not what the world is constantly preaching to us and trying to conform us to. At a very young age, we, we are constantly praised when we excel in school or on the sports field. We're commended when we have something really insightful to share, and maybe we're brought down when we don't. We're rewarded uh, with a higher salary that's based on our accomplishments or experiences. We're given greater social value based on what our achievements are. But this is not how we measure ourselves as Christians. We don't buy into this. Why? Because even though we have very different gifts and very different experiences and very different insights and accomplishments, our standard of measurement for how we view ourselves and each other is not in these things. What's it in? What is our standard unit of measurement? Well, our one unifying experience is that And all that we need to know about ourselves and one another is that we are sinners that are saved by grace. This is the ultimate standard of measurement that we ought to be using. 
Our gifts and our differences then are, are not a means of valuation of ourselves and of one another, but a beautiful display of God's diversity, which also fulfills functions within the body of believers, within the church. So this is how mature, sober-minded Christians ought to view themselves and one another, understanding that we do not exist for ourselves. Look at verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Mature believers understand that they are part of something much larger. In verses 6 through 8, Paul shows us our diversity by putting some of our giftings on display. This is not uh, an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. The, the point here is not to create a, a compendium for us of spiritual gifts, but the point is to show uh, the variations of gifts and how they're used to bless the body as a whole and to live as members one of another. So let's take a look at these, starting in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, Paul gives us a list of seven gifts which God has given to us, those of us who are Christians, through the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside of us, and Paul exhorts us to use them, to use them. Now, here's what we need to remember about these gifts. They are spiritual gifts, meaning they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that expressions of these gifts don't exist outside of the church, but their complete manifestation comes to fruition in the Christian. Comes to fruition in the Christian. The, 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 the second thing to remember is that spiritual gifts are almost always talked about as being given for us given to us to serve and minister to the needs of the church body. So these aren't superpowers that we have to go out and to save the world. So these gifts are from God. They're empowered through his Holy Spirit for us as Christians, and they're used for the purpose of building up God's kingdom. All right, so let's look at these gifts. Prophecy. We're going to run through these. We could spend our entire time this morning diving into the gift of prophecy. Uh, and, and indeed, we actually have. So we preached through this when we went through 1 Corinthians um, chapter 14. Uh, and we'll leave a link for this in our podcast notes. So if you listen along, you can click on that. You can listen to a whole sermon on the gift of prophecy. But very generally speaking, the gift of prophecy, as we see it in the Bible, is having a specific revelatory insight into the things that you would not otherwise know unless it was made known to you by God. Are you following me there? Now, this is not always about like telling the future, but one of the examples that we see, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is that it includes having an awareness into the secrets of someone else's heart, and the revelation of which is something that is edifying and, and is Christ-exalting. So you may have the gift of prophecy if you found yourself speaking into other people's lives and having insight or knowledge that go beyond like what you should know, Right? And these people might say things like, who told you that? Or how did you know that? Now, all prophecy should be tested by the Spirit with Scripture, but the fruit of prophecy is edification, encouragement, and worship. That's prophecy. Verse 7, you see service there. The gift of helping or serving, uh, the Greek word there is diakonia. It's the root for diakonos, which is a deacon. So we're all called to serve, but some... Uh, 
in particular, gravitate toward the practical aid of other people. You might have the gift of service um, if you find yourself just really liking to meet practical needs, if you feel really comfortable working behind the scenes to get things done. People with the gift of service are usually task-oriented. They, they typically make really great administrators, and they work really well on teams and with others, and they don't necessarily need recognition or the spotlight. A lot of people I know with the gift of uh, service avoid the spotlight at all costs. So that might be you if you have experienced those things, the gift of service. The gift of teaching, you see this in verse 7. The gift of teaching in the context of the church is being able to clearly communicate the truth of Scripture to others. It's important to know that even within the gift of teaching, there are further specialties or delineations. So some people are especially gifted at, at, at teaching in smaller settings. Others are really gifted at teaching in larger settings. Some are gifted in teaching adults, others teenagers, and, and others children. But, but, but at any level or, or in any format, a person with the gift of teaching helps people grasp the truth of Scripture. That's teaching. Exhortation in verse 8. Also known as the gift of encouragement. Uh, people with this gift are able to edify and encourage other believers. These are people who are highly relational and, and, and they love to share passages of Scripture which speak to where someone is specifically at. And people with the gift of exhortation or encouragement, they're going to gravitate toward those who are struggling, maybe younger believers in the faith, while they're still encouraging and exhorting mature believers uh, and leaders within the church as well. So that's exhortation. I know I'm moving quickly. We have another sermon that dives into these even more expansively. We'll leave a link for that as well. But there's a lot of text to get through, so I, I want to do all of it justice. Gift of giving in verse 8. The, he says, the one who contributes in generosity. So the People with the gift of giving are going to find, uh, I think, a special joy and a delight in helping to financially support the ministries of others and the church. All of us as Christians are called to give, but those of us with the gift uh, of, of, of giving are, are going to be constantly seeking opportunities to use this gift. Uh, people who have matured in this gifting are often, not always, but often excellent stewards of their resources. But whether it's with a lot or a little, people with the gift of giving joyfully and generously bless others with their resources. That's giving. Leadership, you see that in verse 8 as well. The Greek word used here, it translates to, to rule or to govern. And so the gift of leadership is having the ability and the capacity to effectively steer others toward biblical, gospel-centric goals and values. So those with the gift of leadership are able to gather and mobilize people to work together for the kingdom. And good, godly leadership can help bring about spiritual health in people, uh, fruitfulness in that ministry, really to bring out the best of the people who are following them. Last one here in verse 8 we see is mercy. So those of us with the gift of mercy are drawn to the weak, to the sick, to the suffering, to the hurting people of the world. Those of us, uh, or those who are marginalized, those who are powerless, those who are oppressed and, and without hope. And while all Christians are called to be merciful, those with this gift are by their nature, like especially compelled to serve those who cannot serve themselves. So those with the gift of mercy 
have great capacity for compassion in their hearts, and they'll do whatever they can to help alleviate suffering in those who are around them. So those are some of the spiritual gifts that Paul highlights. The first exhortation that Paul gives, and that I'll give to you, is Mercy House. If you have these gifts, you need to use them. Paul says use them. Don't think too highly of yourself based on your gifts as if the church can't exist without you. It can. But don't think so lowly of yourself and of your gifts that you don't use your gifts at all. After all, that is the point of these gifts. God has given us these gifts, not so that we might find our value or our worth in them, but because they are necessary for the body of believers here in Amherst, Massachusetts. If this is where you call home, God has ordained that we use these gifts in order for us to have a healthy expression of his body. And so, let me walk through these with specificity to our situation here in Amherst. Let us use them. This is in verse 6. Let us use them in prophecy in proportion to our faith. If you think God has given you the gift of insight into people's hearts and lives, you need to use that. Um, connect with people in our church and in your ministry. Spend time with them and pray that God would give you a prophetic word to encourage and to edify and to build someone up. If God has put something on your heart to share with someone, and if that thing coincides with the truth of the gospel, share it with them. Share it humbly. Don't be weird about it. I've been blessed by this more times than I can count, to be quite honest. Someone will approach me or will text me and say, hey, I don't know if this means anything special to you. I just want you to know God sees you right now and he loves you or something to that effect. And sometimes it doesn't mean anything like earth shattering, but I'm still blessed by it. Like that's a truth of scripture um, and, and, and it's like really good for me to remember on a regular basis. Other times I've had a text come in with such specific encouragement and truth and it spoke to me so profoundly into like the deepest recesses of my heart and the situation that I'm in that I'm like brought to my knees in thankfulness to God. Like God was speaking directly to me. If you have this gift, you can do this for one another. Verse 7, if service in our serving. So Paul's like, if you think you have the gift of service, then serve, right? This is a reminder that our church does not like run on a handful of paid staff. Our church as a body relies heavily on the body being willing to serve, to move chairs around on a Sunday morning, to, to run the sound booth in the back, to set communion on a Sunday morning, to help with the kids downstairs, so if this is your first time here, I'm not talking to you. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. Like, let us serve you, at least on this Sunday. But if, if this is like your third month or greater here, and the extent of your engagement with our church has been coming in, grabbing a name tag, participating in worship, and then leaving with a bag of bread, I want to encourage you to serve. Serve. Maybe you've been waiting for an invitation. Well, here it is. Please serve. Please consider serving here at Mercy House. There's going to be a, a few tables in the back with signs and QR codes that you can scan, and there's a little survey on there. Give us your name, your email, and a place that you'd like to serve, or multiple ones. You can check them all off if you want to. Remember that if, you, if you're a Christian, God has given you gifts to use. This is part of what Spina was talking about earlier. God wants us to use those gifts. Here's an opportunity and a place for you to do that. Use your gifts, Mercy House. Second part of verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. We, we see biblically that elders and pastors are the chief teachers. 
within the context of the church, but that doesn't mean that there are no opportunities for you, for you to use a teaching gift. And one of the ways that you can use your teaching gift, gift is to help our little kiddos downstairs at Mercy House Kids. It's a great way for you to use your teaching gift. And if you do think that that is like beneath your teaching skills, don't think too highly of yourself. <laughs> our children need the gospel on a Sunday morning just as much as we do up here. And if we can't teach the basic gospel principles to our children, we have no business teaching in any other context. So in addition to this, we do have preaching and teaching seminars every semester. The next one's scheduled for May. So come and, and engage, hone your skills. And then lastly, be involved with men's and women's ministry, which, which have been a platform for people to practice their gifts in teaching. And one of the first times I ever taught was actually at a men's retreat here at Mercy House. So if you're interested in teaching, let us know. You can fill that out, again, on the survey in the back. Number eight, uh, or verse eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. There's no shortage of people to exhort and to encourage. We all need strengthening in the Lord. If this is your gift, you need to use it. <laughs> Encourage those around you. A couple weeks ago, I got hit by a drive-by exhortation. Okay? I, I heard the door ring, and I came out in my PJs, and I saw Avi peeling out of my driveway. And I looked down, and I see a little planter box of daffodils with a little note on top. And uh, the, 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 the flowers, the daffodils are Caitlin's and our girl's favorite flowers. And, and like our family treasured that little encouragement. I had a little verse in there, um, and, 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 and Caitlin was away, and I like snapshotted it to her, and like, I mean, I was like tearing up. It, it was really sweet. Look, you don't have to go all out like that. You don't have to do something as epic as that, but like send a text every once in a while. Shoot off an email to someone. Buy someone a coffee. Take the time to build up and edify your brothers and sisters with God's word and reminders of the gospel. That is the greatest encouragement that you can give to a brother or sister. The person to your left, the person to your right is in great need of encouragement in their faith. And so use your gift of encouragement. If you don't have the gift of encouragement, then I, ex I encourage you to just encourage your brothers and sisters anyway. All right. Second part of verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity. This is going to be very similar to what I said about serving. This is your first time, second time. We're just glad that you're here. And, and enjoy everything that we're able to offer to you. This is completely on us. But if you are a regular attender, we want to encourage you to use your resources, which are ultimately a gracious provision from God, as it means to worship God and bless those around you. So practically speaking, it's been a very challenging couple of years here at Mercy House, what with COVID and our church transitioning uh, from our founding pastor. In our budget, we've budgeted a deficit, expecting there to be less giving, uh, but we still have not been able to reach our level of giving that, that we had hoped for. It's still below where it needs to be. So if you need an invitation to give, if you've been coming around here, you're like, oh, wow, they got it all together. Well, I'm, I'm asking you to uh, help fund the ministry here. Help us pay the bills. Invest in what God is doing here, and then stick around to see the eternal fruit of it. Look, if you've been praying, this might be very specific, but if you've been praying because you're sitting on like a lump of money, and I'm not joking, and, and, and you're like, Lord, how would you have me use this or give this? Like, let me be so bold as to say that perhaps this is the opportunity that you've been praying for. For all of us, let us not stifle the calling in each of us to give generously. 
and let us worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our resources and finances as well. Placing all of that on the altar of sacrifice and submission to God as a response for the great mercy that he's had in our lives. Give generously. In verse 8, the one who leads with zeal. Leaders in the room, be diligent, be earnest, lead with fervor, do it enthusiastically. And in whatever realm you lead in, whether that's in your workplace or in your home or on your, in your campus ministry or here in the church, lead with conviction and with humility, doing everything so that those who follow you might spiritually flourish in Christ. Lastly, the one who acts the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All of you, uh, with the gift of mercy, Lord knows that we need you in this world. And though I know that you carry a lot of other people's burdens as you exercise that gift of mercy, make sure that you carry those burdens to the feet of Jesus. Do not lose heart. Persevere in your compassion with cheerfulness and joy. And the way that we do that is we remember that there will come a time when Jesus will come and he will wipe away every tear and every form of suffering will be dissolved. Persevere in showing mercy. So what is the logical response to the gospel in the way that we are to relate to God? It's in worship of him. What is the logical response to the gospel and how we relate to one another? Well, we serve one another with every gift that we have at our disposal. So let us as a church grow and mature in this. In verses 6 through 8, Paul shows us how to practically serve one another with our, with our gifts, but our interactions with one another go way deeper than just using our gifts. Let's read on and see. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. You can almost view this as a bit of a junk drawer of right Christian behavior toward other Christians, but verse 9 there is an anchor point for all of these following verses. And Paul says to practice genuine love, not hallmark card love, not like candied heart love, real love which is then explained by these next words, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. To abhor something, it means to hate, to be horrified by it. And to hold fast means to cling to, to make yourself inseparable with, to literally like glue yourself to something. And so to have genuine love means to hate evil, be horrified by evil, and to cling to, to glue yourself to what is good. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Having genuine love for someone does not mean being passive or permissive when there is sin or evil in their lives. And it doesn't mean avoiding conversations that would otherwise steer them and shepherd them toward wholeness and right gospel living. If you want to be a good friend, a good Christian brother, a good Christian sister to someone, and be truly loving, do not be a yes man or a yes woman. 
Absolutely, be encouraging. But if we are clinging to what is good, if we are being transformed by the renewal of our mind by God's word, and you, you see that the behavior in your brother or a tendency in your sister or train of thought in your friend is not good, then practice genuine love and call it out with grace and with humility and with gentleness. At the end of the day, a good friend cares more about your spiritual well-being than whether or not you like them or, or that you're well thought of by them. A good friend is horrified by sin, not by your rejection or your offense. A good friend clings to what is good and holy and righteous. They're not clinging to having a comfortable, conflict-free relationship with you. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is the kind of friendship the Bible tells us we should desire in life. But it's also the kind of love that we're called to give in our friendships. So are we doing this? Is this how we're loving our brothers and sisters? Or are we afraid of rejection Are we afraid of disturbing the balance, of ruffling some feathers? Genuine love is not afraid of such things. Now, this is not a license to be jerks, okay? Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So if we're in Christ, we're not just friends with one another, we are family with one another, And as such, we're called not only to love genuinely, but to love carefully, to love tenderly with brotherly and sisterly affection. We're called to compete with one another in how much honor and respect we show one another. This is a little snapshot of healthy church living, a healthy household of God, and what that looks like in light of the mercies of God, where everyone is using their gifts to edify and build one another up as as we genuinely love one another with respect and with dignity, but caring for one another when we're straying away and gently correcting one another back to what is good and holy and right. This is what the first 11 chapters of Romans are building up to as it plays out in our relationships with one another. And it is a beautiful sight when it's happening. But this vision for heavenly living isn't always our reality. Paul is not oblivious to this. What we see in the next verses is him addressing some of the very real challenges of Christian living. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. When humans are stressed or scared or anxious, there is a physiological response that we all have. If we sense a threat and our brains interpret that as real, our bodies snap into action, and we, we, we typically have two reactions to that. We either go into fight mode or we go into flight mode. This is a real thing. Our heart rate quickens. Our blood vessels dilate to carry more oxygen through our body. The, the blood vessels, which, which serve secondary purposes like digestion, digestion they, they constrict and so that allows more blood to, and oxygen to go to the skeletal mu- muscles and, and, and our lungs start to expand and we start breathing faster. 
We introduce more oxygen into our bodies. Our skin will go pale like we've seen a ghost. And all that blood is diverted into the more essential systems. And our pupils will dilate so, so we can get more light and we can see better. And then once our bodies are all primed and all ready, we're either like ready to fight something or to like run really hard and fast away from the situation. Christians do not respond with fight or flight, at least not in relationships with one another. I've been on this earth long enough to know and have, have moments in relationships with people that make me either want to fight them or to run away. And Paul in these verses is telling us to not do either of these. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Usually when someone is causing us pain, we want to fight them. Many of us in this room, at least. We, we want to curse them back. But Paul says, don't fight. Lean in and bless those people. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I think at first glance, this seems very intuitive. If you're at a, if you're at a birthday party, sing happy birthday with everyone, right? And if someone is crying, like, pat them on the back and, and comfort them. But what Paul is calling us to do, I think, goes much deeper than that. Like, what if the person who's rejoicing is celebrating something that you are incredibly jealous of? What if they got the position that you were working really hard for? What if God has given them success in the place where you have been given and experienced incredible failure? What if they just got engaged and you are still single? What if you're at a baby shower and you've had several miscarriages yourself and are still without child? These are parties, there are parties in life that we want to flee from, are there not? But Paul calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a hard calling here, to deny ourselves and to genuinely love our brothers and sisters. He says to weep with those who weep. Weeping uh, with those who weep is easy when we can relate to their sadness. But what about when we can't? What if our friend or our neighbor or our spouse or our child is weeping and they struggle with depression, they are in absolute despair, and we just don't understand why? We cannot relate. No matter how hard we try, we cannot sympathize. What do we do? I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't fight them. We don't fight them and try to convince them that they shouldn't be crying or that they need to snap out of their depression. And we certainly don't flee out of the room in frustration and annoyance. We humble ourselves. We pray for mercy and, and compassion and some sort of supernatural ability to perceive and understand. And then we weep with those who weep. In the times that we feel in our relationships with our brothers and sisters, when, when our blood starts pumping and our skin goes pale and our pupils are dilated and we're tempted to either have that fight or that flight response, I want to encourage you to take a deep breath, to pray for patience, for love, for compassion, for mercy, and then to lean into that. Christians who have been justified by faith and who have been forgiven of their sin live in community with others even when people in that community trigger our fight-or-flight response. Why? 
because Jesus himself had every reason to fight or to flee. He had every reason to let his wrath pour out on sinful humanity as he was being beaten and and, and just mocked. And he would have been fully justified in doing that. He had every reason to flee from the garden before his crucifixion, but he didn't. Jesus blessed those who persecuted him by forgiving them and carrying their sins upon his shoulders. And he rejoiced with those who rejoiced, even when it was hard. And he wept with those who wept. He never ran from hard situations. He never just booked it in the opposite direction. He was never short on patience or compassion, but he enters into all of our messes and is able to sympathize with us. And then he advocates for us to the Father. God calls us to live like this because we are made in God's image, and this is what God does. He's calling us to be who we are. Now, we read this passage, and we might say, okay, Paul, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Surely there's a limit to what we can take. Like, if someone is being really nasty to us, like, what are we supposed to do then? Is there a limit to the evil that we can endure? Well, let's read on in this last section of chapter 12, verse 17. And then we'll finish for the day. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is saying there that that when we have evil done to us, we do not respond with more evil. So if the question from earlier is, look, I know we're saying Christians shouldn't fight or or, or flee, um, but under what circumstances are we actually allowed to fight? And Paul says effectively, never. Don't repay evil with evil. Now, there are some caveats to this, and primarily the fact that no God-fearing Christian who actually knows the Bible would ever use this verse to tell someone who is suffering in an abusive relationship to stay in that relationship. So I I don't know how I can make that more clear for you. If, If this is you, or if this is someone you know, then encourage them or for yourself, like seek help, find shelter, and get out. That is not what this verse is speaking into. Remember, if we are loving genuinely, that means that we are hating evil. We are horrified by it. And we are clinging to what is good and what is godly. So verse 17 here is not negating verse 9 previously. This is not a call to accept evil with passivity, but it's a call to not respond to the evil with more evil. And to, in verse 17, it says in the second part, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I think someone might hear this, and they might respond with, well, sometimes, sometimes you just got to fight fire with fire. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Not only is this not Christian, based on verse 17, it's nonsensical. When do we ever actually fight fire with fire? That doesn't work. Imagine telling a firefighter who's on the scene, like, wow, you had a real big fire there. Have you tried using some fire on that fire? You wouldn't do that. When we fight fire with fire, what do you get more of? Fire. 
fire wins. And when we repay evil with evil, we get more evil, and evil wins. What are we to do instead? Verse 17, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then jump to verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think verse 20 is one of the most widely misunderstood uh, verses in, in Scripture, one of them. Um, I've heard this quoted many times to mean uh, that like, this is a way to inflict hurt on other people who are mean, kind of like a kill them with kindness mentality. Like if you really want to get under someone's skin, really make them squirm, just be nice to them. That is not what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying, or what he is saying is that in our kindness, it is possible that they have a sobering experience like having coals, burning coals dropped on their head so that they are able to see their own sin and their own brokenness and that they might actually repent from it. I mean, this is God's heart. Remember in Romans 2 verse 4 that the purpose of God's kindness towards sinners is so that they would repent. Now, why would we want to do this for someone? Well, because if they don't repent, then they're going to experience something much worse than any evil we can repay them with. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are called to refrain from repaying evil with evil, not because the person who does evil toward us or toward other people doesn't deserve judgment, but because we are called to trust in the one who will bring perfect justice, a justice that we are incapable of, but one which will surely come. I don't know who has hurt you. I don't know what kind of pain has been inflicted upon you or what wounds and scars you carry in this morning, what evil has been done to you or evil that you've seen in the world. But I do know this, that whoever has hurt you, whoever is a malicious, hurtful person, must answer for their sin. And they may not answer to you, but they will have to answer to God himself. And in that moment, on the day of the Lord, they will either be covered by the blood of Jesus who, who bore the fullness of wrath for their sin on himself, or they themselves will have to bear the full wrath of God for their sin. Those who cry out for justice need to see this, that God will have his vengeance one way or another. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we remember that at one time, we as Christians were enemies of God. We weren't just dis decent people who sinned a little here and there. Like we were wholly corrupted. Jesus himself calls us evil in Matthew 7, verse 11. But God did not repay our evil with more evil. He didn't re even repay our evil with wrath. He did what he's calling us to do in verse 21. Do not 
be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God has overcome our sin and all of who we are with good. That's what this meal means, Mercy House. He has prepared a table for us, his enemies. Paul says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. God broke his own body to feed us, his enemies, with the bread of eternal life. Paul says if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. What did Jesus say in John 7, verse 37? Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God poured out his own blood to give our sinful parched lips life. And what was God's intention behind all of this this kindness? Paul says, For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Many of us have had burning coals heaped on our heads. And that kindness has led to our repentance. And so, may God's kindness lead us to repentance this morning. And may we respond in worship of God and live in his image as his example toward all of our brothers and sisters around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that uh, you have loved us with genuine love. God, thank you that you love us enough to call out sin and brokenness. You love us enough to not only call us out, but to make a way for us to turn from that sin and to restore us and redeem us. Thank you for how you have justified us, Father. God, we confess that we don't know how to always view ourselves in healthy ways or view our brothers and sisters in healthy biblical ways. So help us to do that, God. Help us to not think of ourselves too highly, not think of ourselves too lowly, but to have sober judgment toward ourselves and toward one another. God, help us to love one another genuinely, even when that is hard to do. Lord, help us to cry and weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice when that is a hard calling. And Lord, we can do this because of your spirit and because ultimately you have done this for us, God. Thank you that you have made it possible for us to be in a relationship with you where we can experience these things firsthand from you. Father, help us now as we come and take communion, God, to remember that we at one point were enemies, but you have set this table for us. And so, Lord, we receive it with thankfulness We thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, help us to trust you, Lord. We thank you and we look forward to, God, the the day when, when you will have executed your perfect justice, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.